Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and despite Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes winning the first race of the season, Red Bull has had the edge on performance based on the evidence so far. But how confident can we be that this is how things will continue? And just how big a limitation is the low-rate concept for Mercedes and Aston Martin? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes. Well, hello, Gary. I guess you're probably relieved to be enjoying your F1 retirement right now rather than scrambling around to learn the lessons from the first weekend. I'm, I'm sure you had quite a few stressful moments from your uh, past life at uh, these, this sort of time of year. Uh, yeah, you're right there, Ed. I'm definitely uh, enjoying it more than being there and taking all that, that pressure. You know, it's one of those sort of situations. You never know where you are until the first race, really. And I think seeing Mercedes come out on top, I think they know they shouldn't have, really. Um, but they, they did, and that, that gets them the 25 points, which is what it's all about. You know, points make prizes. So as long as you can grab them... Um, on a weekend when maybe you should only have had maybe 18 or 15, then at the end of the day, you've done a better job than the rest, uh, no matter what about the speed of the car. So the season has suddenly become, uh, hopefully, 22 more races. And at the minute, um, Red, um, Mercedes are leading it. But Red Bull you know, definitely have a faster car at this point in time. I was impressed that, uh, that Mercedes himself did you know, recover from a bad situation from testing. I mean, they, they were openly admitting that they were in trouble. I think they still are admitting it. But I think it'll change from circuit to circuit. You know, the ride height thing becomes a slightly different thing or this rake thing becomes a slightly different thing for from circuit to circuit. So I don't think anybody could sit here and say, oh, yeah, that's going to be the same story the whole year long. It's not like that. It really isn't like that. So I think uh, we need to see three or four races to try and get a little bit of a trend through it from different circuits and see, A, how Mercedes can respond. Because I think it is, I think they can respond. I'm not saying they just have to put rake in the car. I think there's ways they can put a, a decent bandage on it, and you know we'll get into maybe a bit more of an in-depth technical discussion about it later on. And uh, rake, I think it's just do this little bit here as a general opinion. But I think there's, there's things they can do for sure. And obviously Aston Martin, um, you know, they, they sort of talk it up a little bit, but they, they had a pretty dismal weekend to be honest by the standards that they were expecting. Uh, it never really happened, and. Mercedes and the Aston Martin are the two cars that of the grid follow the same trend. Um, I think Red Bull and some other cars have fairly high rake, and then the rest are all in between there somewhere, and they all accommodate it. So, as I say, maybe we'll get into a bit more in-depth technical uh, reasons for it later on. Yeah, we're going to get into the rake in detail in just a moment. We'll just say hello to, to Mark. And it's great, isn't it, that there are so many 
unanswered questions. We've had the first chance, the first race questions answered, but now we've got this challenge of can Mercedes make good with what it's got and take the fight to, to Red Bull over the season? How are the performance going to swing? It's just great, isn't it, that this season that did seem like it might be a little bit of a, of a treading water season is posing so many interesting questions. Yeah, it's terrific. And then we, we thought that it's such a, what was billed as such a minor regulation change wasn't um, wasn't going to have much impact on the competitive order. But of course, um, the, the reality has proven very different. And even though in some ways it is just, a, as you say, a, a treading water in terms of uh, the, 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 the cars and the the concept of the cars ready for the um the all new formula in 2022 uh from a competitive point of view it's not at all it's 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 uh, every bit as valuable as any other championship so yeah it's it's shaping up uh, beautifully well i can see gary you can't wait to get into this so so let's take a look at the rake both mercedes and aston martin as you said have pointed to the rule changes working against their concept so Based on what you've seen and your your vast knowledge of uh, of F one aerodynamics, how big a limitation is it? Why is it such a big limitation? And what can they do to improve it? So that that's about half an hour's worth of questions I've just asked you there. So we'll we'll sit back and be and be educated now. Well, we'll just sort of start at the beginning, really, of why it's done. Um, most of the, these Formula One cars currently, you know, low speed, low and medium speed, they suffer from understeer. Um, High speed, the driver likes a little bit of understeer. You know, nobody wants the rear of the car to snap away at high speed corner because you end up in the hedge too quickly. So normally these cars understeer a little bit at low speed. If you uh, adjust the front wing to get rid of that, you make the car a bit more pointy, a bit more snappy in high speed corners. So you don't want to do that. So the high rate cars mean that the front wing and the leading edge of the floor um, is a bit lower at low speed because the rear of the car rises more. So it moves the center of pressure of the car, which is the point where the forces all react on the car. It moves that center of pressure forward. So you get a little bit more grip at low, at, at low speed. And as the car goes faster, the rear of the car sinks down into the ground. Front of the car sinks down into the ground. Rear of the car sinks down into the ground. And basically the center of pressure goes a little bit rearward with it. So you get to a point with a Red Bull, you know, it's good in, in low speed or high rate cars, let's say, not Red Bull. High rate cars have got a better balance on low speed corners. And um, the rear of the car, the centre pressure moves rearward, so they've got a good balance in high-speed corners. Now, the low-rate cars, A, the centre pressure doesn't move as far forward, and B, um, it won't move as far rearward because the car starts its life in the pit lane closer to the ground. So with all types of things like a Venturi, basically it can only cope with pulling that air through underneath the car through a certain gap. And if that gap gets too small, it stalls. So as the Mercedes sort of builds up speed in the rear of the car settles into the ground, the, the diffuser stalls earlier. We'll come on, I'll come on to the, point, the points of the diffuser stall later. But the diffuser stalls earlier. So in effect, the Mercedes has a smaller working window than the Red Bull. And it has less of a balance shift. But that balance shift Red Bull are using to, to, to shift in the right direction. So going forward at low speed, going rearward more at high speed. As I say, the Mercedes diffuser will stall that bit earlier. And when we talk about high rake and low rake, we could be talking about 30 millimetres maybe, up to 50 millimetres maybe, difference in rear ride height. So as I say, the diffuser, let's say on the on the Mercedes, it starts off in the pit lane at 70 millimetres. The car might move, the rear diffuser might move down towards the ground at the rear axle by, let's say, 50 millimetres. And at 20 millimetres, that diffuser will stall 
on the Red Bull, let's say it starts at 100 millimetres and it moves down 50 millimetres with, with speed and load to 50, 250 millimetres. So that means it, it, it doesn't reach that stall. So Red Bull don't suffer from that same consequence in the diffuser of the, of the airflow, just not being able to feed through the diffuser sections. Um, so they have a Red Bull have a more consistent car. Mercedes have to run their car probably a bit stiffer, and I think we can see that. The Red Bull is very good over the curbs. The Mercedes isn't as good over the curbs. So they run their car a little bit stiffer to, to sort of close up that window and not allow the car the movement that, that the forces on the car really want to have. Um, so how does Mercedes recover from this? Obviously, it's easy to say, well, just raise the rear ride height, job done, and away you go. And I'm sure they will push the rear ride height higher to the maximum they can. The area of the diffuser that stalls is the, is the middle section. Each of these diffusers has, from centre line going outwards, they've got three splitters each side. Um, and the area that stalls first is the furthest away from the outside world. It's that middle section coming in around the gearbox, the lowest point of the car, which is called the reference plane. And McLaren come into this as well because of what they've done to their splitters. Um, the... The reason that stalls, as I say, is because it's furthest away from any airflow, any outside influence. Also this year, the splitters are 50 millimetres shorter. And the reason you have the splitters there is to actually sort of make compartments up in the diffuser. You want the diffuser to stall because it gives you straight line speed, which is one of the reasons why the Mercedes is normally fairly good in a straight line and the Red Bull isn't. But if that stall can sort of, let's say, talk to that other compartment next to it, then a bigger area of the diffuser will stall, losing a lot more downforce. And because the splitters are shorter, then that stall can talk to that next compartment and affect the flow there as well. So the stall gets too big. Um, it's not the actual diffuser stalling that's the problem. It's when you get to the end of the straight and you hit the brake pedal, the rear of the car comes up in the, up in the air because of the, the G-force, because of the weight transfer. It also comes up in the air because of the downforce is decreasing. And it's, it's how fast that stall can reattach and give you the rear downforce that you want on corner entry. Um, and that's really what the driver wants. He wants, he wants to feel the rear's got grip whenever he turns the steering wheel. Um, so basically, on the, on the Mercedes, I think that because it's low, it stalls more than the Red Bull, and the splitters are shorter, the stall in the diffuser's too big, and it doesn't recover quick enough. So, as I said, McLaren come into this equation because they've found a way of making their splitters longer at the front of them. The, the, the inside splitters on the sides of the gearbox, they've found a way of having them 50 millimetre longer because of the width of them. Um, and that means that the, the critical area in the diffuser doesn't talk to the next one. So the centre section gets is still separated as, as it was last year. It doesn't actually influence the flow in the next section. And then they taper back at an angle, so they allow that to progressively... Uh, lose some downforce, I suppose you might call it. But but critically, they don't allow the stall to talk to each other. So Mercedes could move move their splitters in the diffuser. I'm not quite sure what the regulations allow um, to get them to within the area where they can drop them down 15 millimeters. So those two departments don't talk to each other or compartments don't talk to each other. They could raise their rear right height a little bit. One of the things they don't want to be doing is stiffening the car up too much because, you know, the car does want to have the, that compliance and you do need to ride the curbs these days because... Um, the the uh, stewards and the, the officials seem to never make a mind up as to how far off the track you can go. Um, so you've got to allow the car to ride over those curbs. 
So basically, as I say, you know, they've either got to try to make separate those compartments so one stall area doesn't talk to the other compartment and make the whole diffuser stall, or they've got to raise the ride height, let more air flow through there to keep that stall from being as critical. It's all possible. It's just a matter of, you know, the low ride height guys and myself, I thought the low ride height would be better, or the, or the low rake would be a better solution for these new regulations. And I think before Mercedes and Aston Martin got to the first test, I think they would have said it was still a good solution. Um, I think they were as shocked as anybody that suddenly the high-rate cars were actually in, in vogue. You know, it was, that was what they should have been doing. Um, so I think it was a shock to everybody, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll see them recover. But we need two or three races before that will probably happen. And Mark, when you look at this situation, we also have to bear in mind that Red Bull last year, remember when we spoke to Pierre Wacker and Paul Monaghan at the end of the year, they felt that their concept did have more potential than, than the Mercedes. So while the rule changes have perhaps further influenced that, we, I guess we shouldn't also discount the fact that if you get the high-rate concept correct with more volume underneath the car, there is more kind of theoretical potential there as well. So we perhaps shouldn't see it as them kind of backing into this situation by luck as well, should we? Yeah, they were already on a very productive curve um, towards the end of last year. And okay, we we knew that Mercedes had switched its development off after Spa, so we were assuming that a lot of people were assuming that that closing of the gap that Red Bull made to Mercedes by the end of the year was because of that, and I'm sure it was partly because of that. But it wasn't only that; it was the fact that they they'd understood the problems um, that they the narrow nose had caused with their car, and they'd um, worked around about understanding it and they were actually getting a lot more out of the car themselves just in reference to themselves than they had been earlier in the year so that i think that um understanding continued you know directly in, in into this year's car and it's interesting what gary's saying about the um wh- where you would expect the um high and low rate cars to be strong and weak because when you asked Mercedes where it was losing performance of the lap, it was basically two corners. And um, it was a turn five, six, which is a, like a, a quick uh, right-hand kink going into a, uh, sorry, left-hand kink going into a right, decreasing speed right-hand um, d- downhill. And nine ten, which is the, the, the fast kink approaching the downhill hairpin. And so, you know that balance change that Gary was talking about—that's desirable as, as as the speed bleeds off. They they were the two um, places on the circuit where the Merc was losing big big chunks of time. But any corner where you just took the entry speed in and you sort of just went through that, like turn eleven or twelve thirteen or fourteen fifteen, high speed aero, the Merc was every bit as fast as the Red Bull and every bit as hooked up. Um, but if it had to do something that, that in the middle of a corner, either turn more or or, or change speed, um, then it was in trouble. And that sounds exactly what Gary, Gary was talking about. Yeah, we've also got the the question that we've only seen the cars at one circuit, haven't we? So it's only Bahrain. That's a limited data set. So I guess, Gary, before we get into just how much gains could be made by Mercedes in, in correcting some of this disadvantage, is really working out how real we think that disadvantage is we've got Imola up next that has got some changes of direction in corners some uh some changes in elevation etc but again not perhaps a typical circuit so 
how how definitive can our conclusions from this one set of data from one circuit be? Uh, well, it's impossible because you know every circuit starts at the start finish line and they go round in a circle and come back there. And on the way there, there's some different varying corners from low speed to high speed. So every circuit will have its characteristics. I mean, if you take Ravatsa 1 at Emola, where you come down the hill there and you break hard and turn turn into Ravatsa 1, that could be a tricky corner if the diffuser is stalling and not reattaching because it will definitely have stalled coming down that hill. And you definitely break downhill. You, the weight transfer is higher. Everything's worse for the rear of the car. So that could be a corner to keep an eye on to see to see what happens there. Um, as is going down into Aquaman Rally. You know, those are corners where it could highlight Mercedes' problem. Um, but it's, it's no, it is not black and white by any means. It's, everything is, a, is about trying to get the maximum out of the, all the aero surfaces on these cars. And the harder you work them, the more critical they become and the more you've got to manage them. So, again, as I say, three or four circuits, let's have a look at the overall sort of package as to who can get the best out of it. Um, on any given day, I think, you know, it looks like at the moment the Red Bull have you know, two tenths, three tenths or something. But, you know, if you wind the clock back a little bit, and we we, we all sort of said that uh, the Mercedes press release um, was one of the good ones. We had some strange press releases, but the Mercedes press release, release was one of the good ones. They're, they're car releases such. And again, taking Aston Martin and, and then all the talking they did, there was a lot of it during that car release. Not one of them mentioned the fact that they thought the regulation chains had hurt low rate cars more than high rate cars that was you know that was days before these cars ran for the first time uh, and you would have thought if it was so black and white you know um Otmar Schaffner he he talks a lot about it now how black and white it was last year that the, the low rate the low rate cars are going to suffer more but not one of them said a word about that. So I don't think that they did actually believe that. I think they believed they were on, on trend with everything else. You know, they were going to do a good job and, and come out running from the, from the, the, um, on the first race, but they didn't do that. So it's after the fact that they're learning as well. So I think that uh, we have to give them time to, to sort of recoup from that, I suppose you might call it. I mean, Vettel had a troubled test, didn't get the laps in. Bottas had a troubled test, didn't get the laps in. So, Let's give them two or three races, but I see I see corners at every circuit that could suit one or the other. The good thing for me is the Red Bull, for sure, are good over the curbs. They never really have a problem. The rear end of the car can be with high rate can be run a little bit softer and not fall into that that diffuser stalling area as easily. So it means you can get the power down because coming off the corner, you know, the last thing you need is that sort of the coming off the curb and and setting up wheel spin. So you want a car that's very compliant for the curbs these days, and say then you could then you can actually use the curb. Um, so I think there's advantages from the high rake. It's not it's not just downforce. It's not just the high rake. I think Red Bull have that advantage. And so as I say, there's there's corners in uh, in Imola that will suit the able the ability to climb the curbs, and there's corners in Imola where you're breaking downhill, which will increase the diffuser problem a bit. So. We'll get that every circuit, but it'll take three or four races before we actually sort of get a real picture of who's good and who's not. It's interesting as well. You mentioned Ravazza 1. If you think back to the race there last year, Bottas twice ran off the circuit there, and it's, it's, it seems like it was a problem corner for them even last year. Yeah, I, I think it was, and I, I'd go back even further than that to um, to Ferrari with Eddie Irvine and um, and Michael Schumacher when we ran at Emily. I forget what year it was. But um, 
you know, enter Rivatsa one, and you, you saw, you know, Eddie would come down there, and the, the rear of the car would snap because it, it does. If the diffuser doesn't reattach, it's a problem. The rear of the car would snap, um, and he'd catch it. Michael would come down the rear of the car would snap, and he'd catch it. But then lap two, Eddie would come down and do exactly the same. Michael would come down and it would do fifty percent of it, and then by lap three, Eddie exactly the same, and and Michael, you wouldn't even see it happening. So it's about coming to terms with it as well, and. And, you know, driving within the tool you have, because that's all you can actually do. The problem is with that, you end up doing a lap time. In Michael's case, it was quicker than Eddie, but but relatively, you still do a lap time that the car's dictating, so the driver can't exploit his talent to push that bit harder. That's whenever it sort of stands out. And again, it's the same old deal. It's, you know, new tyres and qualifying make up for a lot of balance shift, balance changes. So the car in qualifying, with a set of new tyres on it, you can get a lap out of it. Um, but once the tires lose their peak, then that become that's whenever it becomes a bit more of a problem. So it's it's never black and white. It's never that easy. So it's 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 about adapting to what you've got from a driver point of view, from a team point of view, minimising that 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 negative, um, and working your way out of it with development components. Coming back to that point you made, Gary, about the teams not initially complaining about the the change of the arrow rules, and then. The, the low-rate teams, Mercedes a little bit, and Aston Martin quite a lot, complaining about the rules. Otmar Safnauer referenced this quite a few times over the weekend. I asked him after the race because he was talking about the changes and the supposed safety reasons for the changes to stop overloading the tyre. So I did ask him, well, are you saying that the that the need for these changes was not legitimate on safety grounds and therefore it was primarily to change the hierarchy, which he sort of said, oh, well, uh, I don't know why we did this. Yeah. So he didn't really say that, but he said, but then after we'd agreed that, we'd straight away had Pirelli saying they were going to do more robust tyres all of a sudden. So uh, it seems to be one of those things, though, that's quite a convenient excuse because when it came to these downforce cuts, the teams did have to agree in principle with them happening. I think they had a suite of, there were nine or ten options they could have had before the, these four they settled on. They all had an input. So, Mark, do you think we should have any sympathy for Aston Martin and Mercedes when it comes to these changes, tripping them up? Or should we say, well, yeah, the rules have changed, but also you did have a concept that in terms of the amount of air volume under the car had potential, well, had less potential than some of the other ones. And, you know, your your concept did have a fundamental limitation in it that you dealt with okay before, but this just tipped the balance and you've just got to live with that. I'm sure if they'd really fundamentally believed that they were going to lose performance to the high-rate cars, they wouldn't have um, agreed politically to it. They would have they would have campaigned more heavily for a different solution and would have been much more trenchant. And I think the fact that um, they were all largely in agreement, you know, within a few degrees of each other, suggests that they all thought they could find their own way of working around it. And But you, the the... the as ever, the proof is in the pudding, and as it's worked out, it looks like um, one one solution has been favoured more than another. Yeah, if you if you if you just take the underfloor in itself, there's there's two main low pressure areas. One is around the leading edge of the of the floor at the front, just behind the bars board area, and one is where the the diffuser starts around about the front of the rear tire, where it starts to kick up. Now those two work independently, but they talk to each other over that big flat surface area of the floor. So the whole thing's got low pressure area, but the peak low pressure is at the leading edge of the floor and at that kink. Um, and basically the all that stuff around the front of the floor, the outside uh, edge, means that front corner works as a little bit of a diffuser in its own right. 
it gets caught up with that airflow through the undercut side pods and whatever. And then the diffuser works more over the whole floor in its own right. So when the diffuser stalls, it's that peak low pressure area that's just about the front of the rear tire that gives up first. The other part of the front of the floor will probably still be developing you know, 95% of what it was developing. But the rear diffuser, the floor area there, could suddenly lose 50% of what it was uh, what it was generating. So that's where the big balance shift comes for for the teams. And you know, I think I think that could, should be able to be seen fairly early on. As I say, I was adamant before this all happened that the low rate cars would be better off because they just got less gap to the ground for that leakage to be to be more down the sides of the floor. Um, but in reality, you know, I'm, I'm standing up, put my hand up and say I was wrong. But I think I would have discovered it quite quickly if I actually was going to a wind tunnel and analysing what was going on and trying to work out these these sort of things from, from numbers rather than just from having a quick think about it. And I'm very, very surprised that the might of Mercedes and the might of Aston Martin, who are very close to Mercedes, didn't actually sort of call each other one day and say, hang on, you think we're having a bit of trouble here, you know? But they didn't, so... Now they've got to try to survive and, and uh, get out of the situation. And in terms of getting out of that situation, Gary, how much can they can Mercedes in particular hope to get out of it? And how much does it just make the best of what they've got? Because as you mentioned, they can try cranking up the right height of the rear a tiny bit, but only the aero surfaces are free really now at the moment. You can so you can change them. You can change the diffuser around a little bit, but your suspension's all set. Your external internal parts, you can't change any of that. So. Even even if they wanted to, they couldn't dramatically change that rake. So if you're the technical director at Mercedes, if you're sat in James Allison's office, you're thinking, right, we've just got to set that the higher rake stuff to one side and just say, right, we are going to find a way to get the most out of what we've got and then hope that if there is a disadvantage there compared to the Red Bull, which does appear there's, there is a disadvantage, we've just got to back ourselves to execute better, which actually they did on the Bahrain weekend. Do you think that that's the way they have to go? I think it's the way they have to go for the for the meantime. You know, just imminently, there's no big quick cure. I mean, they've got a lot of data from the race in, in uh, a lot of data from the race in, in uh, Bahrain. So, and they know there's no no hide, hiding places. You know, that in qualifying that that was the pace. The fuel loads would be the same. All that sort of stuff. They're all in new tires at the same time. Blah blah blah. So there's a good black and white there to to sort of realise the true speed of the car. And then the race, if you look very, very closely at the data, you'll get some data as to how the tyre degradation worked out with both Red Bull and themselves. So they'll have a lot of data to work for, and I expect them to be a better, to be in a better position in Emola, just from the fact of using that data to improve themselves a little bit and, and move themselves into a slightly better window somewhere. Um, if I was in James Alice's position, I would be aiming probably to, to just confirm that data in a couple of steps, but by race by race five or six, if I I would feel that you should be uh, tit for tat with Red Bull. I mean, I think they'll still be they won't be like they were dominating before because on the side of this, you know, Honda have made massive inroads into into the performance of Red Bull and uh, Alpha Tori. So let's not let's not forget that part. Um, it's not all just about this rake. But from a chassis point of view, I would think if I was in James Allison's shoes by race five or six, I would be pretty adamant that I would have got a solution for the car that would put me in a better position. You know, if they were three tenths off in, in Bahrain, then 
going back to Bahrain in, in five or six races time, if you were going to do that, I would hope to be within a tenth of Red Bull. And Red Bull might still have that little advantage, but that's enough of an advantage to, you know, blink wrongly on a bad day and, and you're behind them, type of thing. So that's what all they can work for. That's all they can do, really, to be honest. But I think we should pat, uh, pat Honda on the back for the for their performance. And I'm sure there's more in the Honda. I don't think they would have run the, the engine as near its potential stress limits as, as they will do in the future um, because, you know, they had good reliability run there as well. So I think, you know, I think there's more to the thing than just rake. I think Honda should be part on the back for their efforts. I think also it's the fact that it's Bahrain was the opening race might be giving a slightly misleading picture because if you look historically in the, in the hybrid era, and the, the Merck's always been a, a low-rake car during this time and the, the Red Bull's always been a high-rake one, Bahrain has never been a, a great track for them compared to their global average over the season if you look at the percentage for the you know their their advantage over the second quickest car it's it's always it's invariably much lower at Bahrain even even when they're even in their dominant years their advantage is invariably much lower at Bahrain than it is globally over over the season and I think that so although the, this regulation change may have altered the 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 balance between the advantages and disadvantages of the two concepts I think that Bahrain track always tended to be a little bit penalising of the low rake one anyway. So um, I think even even if um, even if the cars were just frozen right now, and I think if you most other tracks, I think would would give a a, a more competitive uh, Mercedes to Red Bull, not probably by four tenths, which Red Bull had in uh, in qualifying in Bahrain, but um, it's significant, I think. Yeah, if you if you just take the, the sheet sided, I mean, based on the fact that, that Bahrain was quite late in the twenty twenty season and the fact there was three days testing at the beginning of twenty one before the first race, you would have said that late last year, Mercedes, Red Bull and whoever had got the best out of their uh, their cars by that point in time. And for the race this year, you would have think that Mercedes and Red Bull and whoever had got have got the best out of their new car because they had three days testing at that same circuit in similar conditions and all that sort of stuff. But yet, you know, Mercedes and Aston Martin lost 2.1 and 2.2 seconds relative to their performance um, at the end of 2020. And um, Red Bull and Alfa Tori lost 1.3. So, you know, all being that it's, you know, small numbers, there's still 0.8 to, to a second of difference in the loss to that one track. Uh, so you know, if you see that through the whole season, then obviously it's a big drama. But um, I think I think definitely the numbers, if you look at it that way, the, the, the numbers show that the the two low rate cars have suffered more for sure than than the best of the high rate cars. And as I say, the rest of them fit in the middle there somewhere. This creates such a, a great setup for the season, though, doesn't it? Because we've got two slightly different car concepts, therefore there will be performance shifts depending on the circuit characteristics both mercedes and red bull have got a great driver in them so it's potentially going to become one of those seasons that we don't get as often as we'd like to where we've got two teams with a genuine close to equal championship chance shall we say with two great drivers so it really could what we saw in bahrain with it being so close either hamilton or verstappen could have won that race that could be the story for the whole whole season couldn't it mark and Although we've only got one circuit's worth of data to go on, just the possibility that we could be on for that kind of season is is, is exactly what Formula One needed. And it'll be a great test of both Red Bull 
and Mercedes, won't it be? Those are the two teams that have had the most recent spells of dominance. So it's going to come down to the, the strategy decisions, what the drivers do, the teams and how they approach their technical development, how they balance up next year and this year as well. And of course, you can give yourself a bit more aero development for this year at the expense of next year. So in a, in a way, it's also the worst thing for those two teams because they don't want to have to even think about compromising next year to fight this championship battle. But then they're staring down the barrel of a of a really competitive championship fight. So there's almost no right decision to make in that situation, is there? You've got to give somewhere. Exactly that. Yeah, it's beautifully poised. It's everything we were hoping for pre-season, really. That's how it seems. Um, obviously, a very small sample, as you say. Um, but it's it, it's put into sharp focus. I mean, we talked about this in, in one of the podcasts before the season. If we did, if the two cars were evenly matched, you know what um, what demands it would put on the teams and and the drivers of those two teams. And we saw that perfectly, didn't we? We, we saw that um, the lack of um, Sergio Perez in, in Q three uh, was was uh, very significant. Um, Handicap for Red Bull and strategically because it was one one car against two, and the way Mercedes was using Bottas as a strategic tool to help Hamilton's race, um, and you know Red Bull didn't have a, a way of countering that with with their other their other car. Um, so yeah, so there's that. Um, we also saw we, we'd always characterize Red Bull as the more aggressive strategically, been because they could always afford to be because they were so far clear of third and if they were behind why not go aggressive but we saw mercedes in that position this time and red bull having to be conservative strategically so it's it's it has it, it's completely changed the dynamic just just those few tenths of difference between the two cars has completely changed the dynamic and the shape of the races and it's um it's much more interesting if it says like this it's 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 set to be fantastic and that was because mercedes won that on it against the odds you got to say it was a slower car on the weekend it's a particularly valuable victory that one because it, you know, I think when you come to start adding the adding up the points towards the end of the year, that when you know winning a race when you shouldn't have won it, that those sort of races are are, are going to be quite decisive. So I'm, I'm not saying that Red Bull can't do the same. I'm sure there's going to be races that Red Bull end up winning that they shouldn't have won as well because if, if it's as close as it looks. But those sort of victories are very are going to be very valuable in terms of um, championships. Just, Ed, yeah, there's a couple of things you said there that I would obviously like to see improve. One is you said each team has a driver. Obviously, that's Hamilton and Verstappen we're talking about. And, and you know, we need more drivers there that are, are being competitive to just get that mix right. We need Bottas and we need uh, Perez to be up there at least. We'd love to get another team there as well. So there's a bit more of a mix because the, if it's a dynamic of a, a, a two two car, two driver show every weekend, um, you know that, that that's not enough. I don't think to really optimize it. But the other thing is that you're saying about aero development this year as opposed to next year. Uh, one of the things you've got to be very careful of is that this rake thing is not about aero development. This is a basic fundamental of what you develop. So now a team, there's, there's a team sitting in the pit, or a couple of teams in the pit lane now that will change their their direction because next year's car will have rake in it as well. You know, this rake hasn't been done away with. It's a totally different car, totally different package, totally different underfloor. If anything, even more important next year because the underfloor is going to be a bigger downforce reducing device than it is this year. You won't have the same sort of stall characteristics um, because of the, the way that the underfloor will be. You know, you won't have these two peaks of low pressure at the front of the floor and at the back of the floor. 
it'll be more consistent um, underfloor, low pressure area, but you still will suffer from the same sort of things. So in effect, you know, as I say, you, you, you don't put a sort of breeze block in the wind tunnel and start carving it up and making a racing car out of it. You put a concept in the wind tunnel and you start optimizing it. You can op- optimize anything. You'll get, the, you'll get better or worse from your car that you put in the wind tunnel, no matter whether the concept's good or bad. Um, it's, it's just the fundamental car needs to be right to begin with before you get the optimum out of it at the end of, the, at the end of your development program. So I think Mercedes and Aston Martin need to spend some time on this year's car to find out the solutions to, to A, bandaging it or fixing it or whatever, because it will bleed into next year's car's fundamental decisions as to what the concept is. Um, so it's, these two don't, it's not just a light switch. We, we stop racing at the end of 2021 and start racing at the end of 2022 with a completely different package. The package, the understanding will of driver characteristics will still carry over. You mentioned the, the need for more teams to be involved, and ultimately we aren't going to have more than two teams properly involved in that fight at the front this year. But we did see in Bahrain confirmation that that midfield pack has closed in. I think the uh, fastest midfielder was about 0.7% off in, in qualifying. That was Charles Leclerc's Ferrari. I think it was about 1.2% the gap from the midfield to the to the front last season. So there, there's a gain there. So, Mark, when you look at that midfield pack, do you think that's definitive confirmation that they are closer? And how do you see that shaking out? We expected McLaren to be strongest and on balance they did prove to be so uh, last weekend with Norris fourth in the race, even though Leclerc was ahead in the Ferrari in, in qualifying. Yeah, it's, it, it does seem to have closed a bit. Um, not not by enough, I think, to um, to start thinking that they they might be getting among um, the, the, the two teams in front. But yeah, it, it, McLaren delivered ultimately, and it is very much like the pattern of last year. They're not always the quickest qualifying cars in that group, but... They're very, very strong in the race, and uh, it's partly a reflection of their dry l- driver lineup, I'm sure. But it's also, I think, uh, probably quality of the of the car. Um, I think you could probably make a case that Alpha Tauri was actually probably potentially the quickest of that group. Um, didn't quite deliver because they, I think, they got a little bit overconfident with um, with the the, the, the tyres in Q2, certainly with Sonoda. Um, so they, they tried for the medium, and only one of them managed to make it work because the balance change was a bit too much for Tsunoda to to cope with. Um, but and then of course Gasly uh, had a crash very early in the race, so we didn't really see them in the race. So I think, yeah, potentially AlphaTauri was the quickest that weekend. So it would have been interesting to see how they'd compare in the race with the McLaren. Uh, the Ferrari, I think. Maybe not quite as quick as either of those two cars ultimately, but it just has Charles Leclerc in there who on a Saturday just can, uh, I, I was going to say occasionally, but it's becoming more than occasional now. So it's becoming a bit of a regular feature. He'll just pull a lap out of the bag that that's just the car shouldn't be able to do. And of course it can't maintain that level in the, in the race. And, um, it, it, but it, it puts him, you know, further up than he would have been if he'd, he'd qualified for the, par for the, the the car sort of thing so yeah I'm, I'm sh- those three teams i think are close enough to each other that um a bit of circuit characteristic a bit of who runs the weekend the best um will, will have an impact on the order between them and then according to what happens with the the, the, the four red bull and mercs um you know the, the, there's going to be 
regular podiums on offer for each of those teams, I think. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's a fascinating little three-team three battle in itself. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to seeing how AlphaTauri get on at Imola. Obviously, they were very strong there last year. It's a home circuit. Yuki Tsunoda's done a reasonable amount of running there as well. Obviously, he got in the points in his debut, but he was briefly down in 17th at one point early on in the race. So he had a lot of work to do to get up into, into the points and needs to, to qualify better. But that lower part of the midfield is the harder one to call because obviously we saw the Alpine with Fernando Alonso qualifying ninth. I think that was a little bit of an over performance. I think he got closer to the maximum of the car than a few others did. The Aston Martins in that group. I think the Alfa Romeo is capable of being there. We saw how close Giovinazzi was to Q3, and I suspect their driver lineup might hurt them a little bit there. Giovinazzi's a little bit erratic. Raikkonen tends to execute the races pretty well, but lacks that edge in speed. So I do see it as a little bit of a two-tier midfield, even though the gap between the three that I perceive at the front of it and the, the rest of them is, is actually pretty tiny. How, how do you see that one shaking out, Gary? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's difficult to see it all closing up, to be honest. I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, I've got my numbers here, my percentage numbers, and again, they're all derived from, from just one race. Um, and Mercedes were, you know, 0.4 of a percent away from uh, from Red Bull and qualifying. That's true pace of the car on new tyres and on low fuel. Um, Ferrari were next at 0.7 of a percent. Uh, Alpha Tori 0.9, and the McLaren at 1%. So they're... That group there is definitely sort of on its own. Um, Alpine were one point four percent with Alonso, so I think he heads up the next the next batch of cars. But you know, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure that you know what I see with Aston Martin, Alfa Romeo, Williams, and Haas that they can they can really get into that mix. To be honest, I think there's a chance for Alpine to to move forward a little bit, but there's there's room to think they should because you know we all know Fernando Alonso is is a pretty good driver. And he will push the team to the limits of trying to get more out of the car in every way possible. He, you know, he's not going to give up on that now because I think he knows his years are limited. He just has to keep pushing now. And the next time he gets out of Formula One, it'll be probably forever. But the thing, the thing is, as I say, if, if, you, if you look at McLaren, that's 0.6 of a percent. Um, they're away from Mercedes, who won the race, rightly or wrongly. Um, um, that was Lando Norris. was 0.6 of a percent slower than Lewis Hamilton in the in the Mercedes, and in the race he was 46 seconds behind, which is it's just about the same, you know, so relatively the the same amount of time lost per lap in the, in, the, in the race relative to what he was in qualifying. So the performance is, is everything now because, you know, there is no cars, I don't think, that just jump out in the race and suddenly blitz everybody. The performance, the actual lap time you can drive the car at, is what gives you the race as well. Very few times it's it's a, it's a big change. We saw that with Perez. I mean, he started in the pit lane. He was able to get himself up to fifth from, from the back. Um, he was going through traffic and all sorts of stuff. So if he had started 11th or whatever it was, he was he, he qualified. You know, he would have made decent ground and he would probably have been challenging there with the top, the top three. I don't think he would have challenged Lewis Hamilton. I don't think he would have challenged Max Verstappen. But I'm sure he could have had a battle with Bottas and possibly come out on top. Um, so I think that the performance thing now is even more relative to the actual race performance than it used to be. It used to be you get a car that looked after the tyres really well. You know, we saw that with Aston Martin. But that you know, that's not working anymore. Um, so I think you know, there's going to be these two groups for sure. I think it'll be, you know, there'll be five, five teams at the front group, um, but that'll be separated. 
by a significant amount. You know, they won't all be up there. I don't think Ferrari will be there all the time. I think they've done a competent job. Um, I don't think they probably pushed the power unit as hard as they could have done in the race, just because it was the first race as well. So maybe there's room for a little bit more improvement. But I think they're bridging that gap between the the midfield and the and the front runners. And again, Mark, as you say, because Leclerc can pull a lap out of there for sure. And I genuinely think Saints is on is quick enough to also keep him honest. So I think that'll be a, a good thing. But I, I do I do think that we've got the the situation at the minute of Aston Martin, Alfa Romeo, Williams and Haas of being the, the second group, I suppose you might call it. And that's disappointing because these regulations were supposed to pull things together. You know, we've got all new regulations for next year. Why is that going to be different? It's just going to cost absolute tens of millions because of all new regulations. Um, just when the teams were getting a good handle on what they have now, you know, maybe it'll make the car better in traffic. I don't know. It's just one of those sort of situations. They're all un- they're all unknowns. Um, and any 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 racing car, I think, that generates downforce to give you grip will always be affected in traffic. You know, there's no airplane in the sky that can fly at the same with the same consistency or the same uh, stability if it's if it's in in clouds or in turbulence or whatever. You know, as it can on a nice sunny day. You know, it's it's, it's just the way it is. If you're generating forces from from airspeed you're going to suffer if that airspeed is fluctuating. Uh, one thing we should briefly add on the, that midfield battle is Ricardo did have some damage that was revealed a little bit later after we'd done our post-race podcast when Gasly hit him. So that did explain why he dropped back a little bit compared to Norris. I think he lost 10 seconds in each of his second and third uh, stints. But Mark, we talked a little bit about Aston Martin. What do we make of their performance? Because there's a few asterisks against it. Vettel was obviously unlucky with yellow flags in, in qualifying, but he's not on top of the car by his own admission. We saw Lance Stroll had a a decent weekend, but I'm not sure he was at the absolute, absolute ragged edge of what that car can do. So where do we really see Aston Martin at? And, and should they be a little bit worried when you see Vettel not being at one with the car yet is one thing, but the fact he made that same mistake again, the downforce behind another car thing that he's done about 20 times over the past few years. It's frustrating me a little bit because he he should know better than that. He is a better driver than that, but he clearly isn't because he keeps making that error. Yeah, it's, it is quite worrying. I, I, I agree. Um, they've got to really hope that Seb sorts himself out because he's the reference for where the car's at because we don't really know because Lance can be very quick some days and just ordinary other days. So you, you don't, you really need a reference. To, to know where the car is at. And, that, and that's what a four-time champion should give you. And um, at the moment, he's, he's not been able to do that. Um, partly circumstantial. He did, you know, the, the reliability problems he had during testing. And then, as you say, the yellow flags and qualifying. So we don't really know where he would have put the car. And if he'd been um, in a, a, a position that was um, a fair representation of the, of, of the car's pace... He might not have tried the the desperate maneuver after he'd been passed by Ocon, because some some of these moves just seem to smack of frustration from Vettel. It seems like he can't. He has a flashpoint of emotion when something goes wrong, and he seems unable to control it just for that millisecond. By which time, it's too late, and, and that had the look of that again. And um, yeah. He, Really, he really needs to have a good chat with himself because he's not doing himself any favors, and he's, you know, he's sort of 
come to Aston Martin to rescue his reputation, really. There's no other way of putting it because he had a terrible season last year, even forgetting how uncompetitive the car was, just in reference to his own teammate and the number of mistakes he made. It was just a poor season. And so he needs to rescue that reputation. And if he, he can't stop himself from making these errors, if he, if he can't get himself in the right mental space to drive to achieve his potential, then um, it's not going to work. Yeah, the thing, I mean, I'd, I'd like to sort of add on there is just the fact that, you know, that, that he came on the radio immediately, it happened, blaming Ocon for cutting across in front of him. Now, you know, he, he knew that wasn't true. And so did, you know, how many tens of millions of viewers knew that wasn't true. So basically, in, in front of all those people, he just was making an excuse for himself for what happened as quickly as he physically could. And I think that's where the distrust could come into the, between the team and him. Um, because, you know, if that's what you're trying to do, immediately, whenever they, the team can see that's not what happened. But, if they, you know, if he's trying to find that excuse immediately, then where is where does that stop at? Where does that stop in the, you know, in his mental approach to it all? I mean, last year they said it was red mist that did it, but this year they'd say it was green mist because it's just, it's just not right for a driver to say that to you. Because if you don't see the stuff that happens out on the track, then, you know, you you have to believe that that bloke that's in the car that what he's doing with you and what he's telling you and what what's going on is all the right direction and all the, the truth. And and he proved, I think, in, in Bahrain that that wasn't the way he operates anymore. So, what do you do with a driver like that, Gary? I mean, you probably haven't encountered someone quite so extreme. I don't think there's any driver who's a multiple world champion who has such a wide window. The fact he can be so good, yet he can also be so so terrible. So what do you do? Do you do you grab him by the throat, have him up against the uh, the wall of the garage, Andrea de Cesare style, or do you put your arm around him, or uh, how how would you approach it, or do you just have to accept that it's it's a little bit of pot luck as to as to how he'll be doing at any given moment, and there's limited input that you can give to change that. Well, I think Mark summed it up there. You know what you'd say is you have to go in and have a chat with yourself about it, but I think that's that'll never work. You have to go in and have a chat with somebody, and I don't think there's any of the teams out there that really have decent psychologists there to, to sit down and talk to it's wrong to say this but you know i don't think there's many other sports in the world that doesn't involve some type of psychology to try and get your head straightened out on stuff and it's such a it's such a big thing in a racing car because you you are you are that one human element that's making that thing work for you You know tennis golf all that stuff it's all about psychology even the motorbike guys are now sort of buying into it a little bit that if you can get your head straightened out so you focus on your job on a given weekend, it's so much better. You know, did he arrive there with with Ocon passing him, thinking, "Oh, this is another another bad season." You know, I can't get passed by Ocon because you know my season with Ferrari is that is that what he's seeing? Is he seeing that? Is he seeing it all wrong, or is he focused on what's happening today, currently? You know, it's so difficult, and I don't think there's anybody within the team that can help him. He needs to go off and find that help at the top end. You know, Formula One's at the top end when these guys are getting paid, so. There has to be somebody out there at the top end of, of helping straighten out somebody's thought pattern, belief, motivation, drive, whatever you like to call it. You know, we, we saw it way back 2014 when Ricardo joined Red Bull. He had a bit of a, a bumpy ride. Um, obviously, we saw it when Charles Leclerc joined Ferrari. He had a bit of a bumpy ride. And he, he's not got out of that. So he's, he doesn't seem to be good at accepting what he was once, was this young kid coming in, young kid on the block, 
coming in and wringing the car's neck, which he was so good at. And he doesn't seem to accept that whenever it's somebody else coming into the team where he is. You know, he wants to accept it as the the big boy. So uh, he needs to go off and think about it very, very seriously. But I don't think he can talk to himself and get himself out of it. He needs help. And Mark, finally, we should briefly mention Williams because they've been talking up the hopes for Imola that comes up in uh, the, the weekend off, after next that Bahrain showcase the worst of the car, obviously because it is quite peaky downforce-wise. They've talked a bit more in explaining the reasons for that and it's it's perhaps more that they couldn't come up with a a, a car that was less sensitive rather than any particular design direction or whatever but the drivers are taking every opportunity to point out that it's quite tricky when uh, Russell and Tifu got the chance so do you think there is a hope we could see something a big step more from Williams at Imola or do you think it's only going to be you know it's only going to be making a little bit of difference either way when it's favorable or unfavorable for them doesn't look as though um, they're close enough for a, a good weekend to to get them into that territory it looks like it's it's going to take a sort of one of George's very special laps to maybe put it there in qualifying, um, but it, it won't be able to maintain that pace in the race. That's how it looks. It doesn't look to have the consistency of any of the three, even even the Aston. Of, of you know, if you compare Lance Stroll's race, um, it just the, the Williams doesn't have that sort of consistent pace. Um, it's nowhere near the Alpine. It's not close enough to the alpha to, to really be able to envisage it, even if it a more um, uh, appropriate track to its traits. Um, I, no, I, I can't say it. It looks like it's in a no man's land. It's comfortably clear of Haas, but it looks like it's in its, its own little place. And how close it gets that group um, ahead will just depend on the, the, um, the, the circuit traits, I think, and the circuit layouts and, what George can do in qualifying and how long he can keep it in the place that he's qualified it at. I guess, Gary, this just highlights where the weakness of the team is. We know Williams, aero-wise, has been struggling for a while. And when they're trying to push and, as you've talked about in the past, work the aero surfaces harder, they they just don't have the overall control and subtlety to do it at the level of of the, the midfield teams. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like optimising an aero surface. Um, it, it takes time. You've got to you've got to give time to that. You can come up with some type of thing. Let's say you know, a turning vein or whatever, and you might go to the wind tunnel with a gizmo that you're going to put on around the barge boards or anywhere, and you'll play around with its angle or curvature or height or whatever, and you may have sort of four or five derivatives of that component, and you'll try each one, and you'll get a little bit of benefit from moving it, you know, up twenty millimeters or twisting it by two degrees or whatever. You get a little bit more benefit from doing exactly the same again. And then if you move it the next two degrees, it all falls down. It doesn't work anymore. So you can go back one degree and it all lights up again. But that's too close to the, to the critical limit. You know, you, you have to then back it off a bit more. You have to accept that you're going to give up a little bit because that working window will be a bigger working window. So, you know, if your optimum is at five degrees to the car, you know, straight line or whatever, you know, and at six degrees it falls down, you don't want to set it at five degrees because it's too close. You have to set it at four degrees, and you know you're giving up a few, you know, a, a, a few kilograms of downforce generally, but it will be with you all the time. So that all takes a lot of time, though, to sort of optimize. So you'll get a lot of times that the the big the management and the wind tunnel will push you. The management of the company will push you very hard to come up with with peak numbers. But you know the driver cannot drive those peak numbers. He will always make an error with it so you don't get it out of the lap or you have to be very lucky to put a complete lap together 
can happen in qualifying because obviously you've got good tyres on the car, fresh tyres, and that makes up, as I said earlier, for quite a lot of aerodynamic instability. But come the race when they sort of lose their edge, then that's whenever it all falls apart and you go backwards. So you've got to just get yourself to a position where you accept the fact that, you know, you're going to throw away some downforce a little bit, but get consistency in the car. And that'll give the driver more motivation. Um, and, you know, the driver can go out and find you a tenth or two if the car is stable and he can exploit his talents. So um, I think Williams haven't given the time to optimise in their aerodynamics within a, a nice working window for the driver. They've tried to get the, the peak numbers to, to look pretty good and they need to change that philosophy. Yeah, it does look like it's going to be a, a fairly long, hard season as a consequence. Well, thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes, for your insight. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen because there's loads to read there. And if you'd like to hear more from Mark and Gary, they're both on the latest episode of the Bring Back V10s podcast, answering listener questions about everything from Justin Wilson and Nigel Mansell to Ligier's copycat car and the Williams FW14B. And as usual, do take a look at our YouTube channel. Simply search for The Race. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back soon with more from The Race F1 podcast.